0: one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense as the world's tallest building becomes the towering inferno. Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Susan Blakely, Richard Chamberlain, Jennifer Jones, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughn, and Robert Wagner. Erwin Allen's production of The Towering Inferno. See it for Christmas at a theater near you. Rated PG.
1: If there was uh, if there was uh, one man I'd have relations with, it, it, it's Paul Newman. There you I'll go. Tell you that one. There you go. Uh, well, welcome back to another episode of Reconsenimation. I am John Diner, and I'm David Munchak, and this is the podcast where we take a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And here we go. We got a we got a big one. Does it get much bigger than this movie? This is pretty big.
0: You, you know i I don't think so there's only few things that are bigger uh in terms of scope scale size uh excitement thrills chills no chills but uh what are
1: they what what's bigger than this what could possibly be bigger than this movie well
0: um there was something called avatar uh i don't know if you remember that from two thousand mediocre eight um, there was the, the, the Titanic, the, the Titanic, the movie, the Titanic. Which, you mean
1: uh, the one with Billy Zane? Oh no, that's Titanic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the Titanic, which I think is a TV movie from the fifties.
1: Oh um, God. Oh, Ray, Ray's the Titanic. Raise right? the Titanic. That's Ray's the one. The tit- that's yeah. the one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh no i mean it's, uh what is this that we're, we're we're going big right this
1: is big we're yeah we're going back we're going you know we just uh you know a few weeks back we did we did hack hackathon 2020 and we really uh took a good look at the 70s there we we ducked out for uh galaxy quest and of course avenging force but now i, I wanted to get back in there and this is one of the the largest movies of the 70s. Maybe not one of its best, but mm-hmm. uh definitely a a one of the leaders of a of a uh, subgenre in there. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're talking about the all-star cast leading the way for The Towering Inferno.
0: Towering Inferno. I'm so excited.
1: 1974?
0: 1974. 1974 yeah. 74 released. This, this was uh, this was great this was a movie exciting
1: this is an explosion a movie death that's destruction a, that's my favorite that's my favorite David Munchak review what's that this is a movie <laughs> that, that's a movie that's a movie <laughs> <laughs> but this is this was big
0: this even on my my little 12 inch television screen that I watch movies on I can tell this was larger than life at the time.
1: Yeah, this was, you know, I think, you know, we talk a lot in a strange way. We end up talking a lot about Marvel movies today. Um, I feel like this is at sort of that caliber of a big budget blockbuster, like a 70s version of what a Marvel movie is today. I mean, it's got the huge set pieces, it's got the huge budget, it's got the, you know, enormous cast of of all of like high level name value yeah um i don't know is it's the 70s marvel movie
0: yeah i mean i honestly that was my that was my gut like you know reaction when you asked me that question earlier like i i honestly put it on par of like a uh, of like a marvel movie an avengers film uh, mm-hmm. just for the exact reasons you said like that's the parallel um yeah i th- this thing's got this thing's got everything for for moviegoers in the seventies. I think.
1: So if if the Poseidon Adventure is the Infinity War, would would Towering Inferno be the end game? Oh, this is end game. <laughs> <laughs> I think. On so. top of that, on top of that, I mean, it has God, two of my all time favorite actors oh let me guess uh, leading the way let me guess not and it's not who you think but go ahead and guess
0: i'm gonna guess fred astaire and oj simpson you nailed it yep i got it
1: <laughs> <laughs> i am a big naked gun 33 and a third fan and i don't know what happened to oj after that <laughs> no no one's heard from him N- never heard from him again i'll see if he has it's a twitter a promising account. acting career yeah <laughs>
0: But no, who's who's uh who's your who's your big who's your big
1: two? Uh, well, my all time, well, of course you know our all time number one is Kurt Russell. He couldn't be in this movie; he was uh, unavailable. I heard probably. Uh, Paul Newman. If anyone has uh, listened back in our our uh, season one episode of Slapshot, uh, we get into it there. But huge Paul Newman fan. Love. I've I've seen pretty much all of his films, The Good and the Bad. Uh he's always amazing and great and beautiful. Um so love uh, love this movie mostly because of him, but also I'm a big William Holden fan.
0: Oh, sure.
1: Absolutely. But you you didn't see that. You you thought I was going to say McQueen like I've, everybody else.
0: I mean, I th- I thought so. I mean, these were the the two dueling leads of the film and essentially uh and I, but I get it, William Holden. Sure. Uh,
1: if you haven't seen, you know, a lot of his classic things, uh, Sunset Boulevard, Stellag Seventeen, uh, Sabrina, you know, his his Billy Wilder films. You also, I don't think you've seen it, David. But we need to watch The Wild Bunch.
0: I haven't seen The Wild Bunch. I'm in.
1: He's uh, it's later William Holden, but he's amazing in it. Fantastic actor. Uh, and of course, network and and some other films that he did throughout his career. Yeah. Uh, just a great actor, and not a you know not a lot of meat on the bone for him in this movie. But he's here, and uh, it's it's cool to see him and Newman and McQueen together. I love McQueen, also. Sure. How can you not love Steve McQueen? Oh my God, McQueen's everything. This so this
0: this movie. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul Newman, uh, and welcome to Steve McQueen. And I think yeah this I, is and William Holden right I don't think we've we've had him on the
1: on the No show we've right? not covered uh Mr. Holden you know there won't be that many films that we will cover with William Holden Right uh because he was you know his career was winding down at this point uh, a lot of his best work is is back in the in the 50s but uh yeah. we'll definitely look at a few of his films I'm looking forward to it And McQueen we've got a lot to cover with McQueen so Oof, uh, there'll be more More of our friend Steve down the road
0: We could be doing just Steve McQueen and Paul Newman movies For the next three years
1: <laughs> I'm down for that Yeah <laughs> Alright <laughs> um, Was this the uh, Was the screening that we did in uh, At Recon Cinema Studios in, in Studio 12 Was this the uh, first time That you'd seen the movie
0: Um. Yes Yes very recent uh viewing of it uh that was my very first time with it
1: got it okay yeah well uh but the reason let's,
0: I, I was really pushing to, for us to do this movie and if i can give you the reason i wanted to see this movie specifically for, well i've been wanting to see this movie probably for about 30 years the reason i wanted to see wow, it okay and i just i mean I, of course these are those are all those there's always movies where you just never get around to doing. But the reason I want to see it is when uh, I was watching reruns of SCTV on Nick at Night when I was a kid, they had they had like a an entire episode as a parody to this film. That I think when you watched in the half hours on 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 TV, it, it was two episodes. But uh, but originally they SCTV did a, a pretty great parody that this was really funny and I had no idea what it was and then finding out later probably my parents or my siblings telling me that's based on a movie and then oh okay and then hearing about towering inferno later on in in life like oh that's the movie i need to see so and then once we started this podcast i'm like we're i think it was one of the first one of the first movies i suggested like oh well we, we should do towering inferno and uh, so that's where that's where my big push was coming. I know we would have got to it eventually because of Mr. Paul Newman and the star-studded cast. Um, but I think I think I, I I put my I put my fist into the desk and I said, "Damn it, John! It's time." Towering Inferno, and and, and you, I
1: heard it in my office when you put your fist <laughs> through the your your diamond-studded desk. <laughs> yeah. Across the I lot, I felt it. I felt the shockwave
0: across the lot, and you, were, yeah, that's how that's how loud and and I was about the whole thing. Yeah, so that so anyway, yes, the I had an excitement for this film for literally thirty years, and and it finally who was.
1: Who was in the skit? It
0: was. I mean, it was it was the cast at the time. So it was uh, John Candy, Joe Flattery, uh, Andrea Martin, uh, Martin Short, um. And do you remember who and, played and who Eugene though? Eugene Levy. Well, they didn't do a straight parrot like a straight uh, like parody. They spoof. they played their er, yeah. they played their own character. Yeah, they didn't do a spoof. They they played their own like SCTV characters and then also some like some new characters. So it was it, it was an original concept. And we can talk about like the actual sketch later, but um because it, it, they play with the details just to make it more silly and it's a lot of fun. mm
1: mm-hmm. Mhm. Oh, that's cool. I uh, I have not seen that skit. I actually, I loved SCTV as a as a kid, and then I had no access to it forever. And I, I'm a, I guess it's probably on DVD. There's some kind of DVD compilation of it, but uh, I have not seen that in at least 20 years. Yeah. At uh, least you know, like 25, 30 years.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think I've seen SCTV since I was, since like 1989 or 90. Um, did?
1: Did uh, Nick at Night run SCTV? Is that where it used to air?
0: Yeah, that's where that's where I was exposed to SCTV. So I had never seen it before, right. and I knew, right, right, all, like most of the you know the comedians on it, um, and I hadn't realized what it was. I knew it was reruns, like I knew it wasn't something that was live, but it was, uh, um, like you know John Candy being being. In John Candy, obviously, for me, the biggest star. And then, like, Martin Short was in it, and Harold Ramis was in it for a mm-hmm. bit. Um, and at the, yeah, so this isn't really a sketch. It's like it's like a two episode thing. I, on YouTube, you could actually find it. Um, and it, I think it runs about 35 minutes wow. or so. And uh, I
1: will, we'll, maybe we should, maybe we should post a link to it. Maybe we should, uh, tweet that out. Sure. On our social media.
0: I think we will. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot I mean, of fun. It's a lot of fun. The, I get, all right, so just the basic premise. We'll talk about the movie, but the basic premise of the sketch was uh, there the, there was a 280-floor skyscraper built in the town of Mellonville uh, that was built for like $12,000, and it's the tallest, thinnest building in the world with a nuclear reactor on the top floor and then a revolving <laughs> restaurant on top of that, and they were having a big party. <laughs> <laughs> and then a big oh a, a big fire starts and then it's it's uh, a bunch of just silliness uh it's and re- <laughs> rewatching that the comedy is really good like it's 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 uh, i love that show so uh i got i
1: got to check that out yeah it's a lot of fun <laughs> that's great i'm picturing Eugene Levy as like the bartender he was like he played the architect, you know, doesn't look
0: anything like <laughs> Newman, but he plays this. And then right. he plays this guy. Uh, I forget the character's name. He's kind of this sleazeball character that I th- that I believe was in the show, like in SCTV. Um, and then um, Andrea Martin plays two characters. Joe Flaherty plays two or three characters. Um, and nice. just just a lot of a lot of great jokes. And they even go so far as like once Andrea Martin's second character shows up, then they. They end up just using a body double for that character for the rest of the like the the whole piece. So, And then they even mm-hmm. call her like – so Edith Prickley is a character on SETV. You meet Edith Prickley. Then you meet the other character. And then from then on, you have Prickley's double. And the characters refer to Prickley's double. <laughs> like, come on, we got to go with Prickley's <laughs> double. Let's go. And it's clearly a man oh, who's funny. like a foot taller than her. Uh, just a lot of a lot of silly stuff like that. So,
1: oh, that's great. All yeah. right, well, to YouTube we shall go once uh, we're done rolling here. So, fire up the tubes. Uh, yeah, I got it. What was the first time? I'm trying to remember the exact first time I saw it. I grew up definitely a huge Poseidon Adventure fan. I saw that probably when I was seven or eight, and I remember re- reenacting that with my GI Joes. Cool. And but I didn't catch and I knew of towering inferno and I had I think i had seen pieces of it but I didn't uh catch it all the way through until I think I was working at at Suncoast uh in the in the Jefferson Valley Mall and uh I grabbed the videotape one night and, and then I watched the whole thing and I was uh, that's when my love for Paul Newman I would just gotten into Cool Hand Luke and Butch Cassidy so uh my love for Paul just was starting really starting to blossom then Oh yeah, well, so that was around 96, 97. Because you like you discovered him for yourself, and then
0: you were like like voraciously seeking out Paul Newman films, right? Like just watching one after the other
1: at the time. Yeah, I got in. Yeah, I got into him. I think it was. I believe it was my senior year of high school, and I watched Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cassidy, and The Hustler, almost all like right in a row. Wow, like not the same day, but but like within like a week or two, I hit all three of those and uh it was it blew my mind and then then i got into other of his films and you know even stuff later on like hudsucker proxy and and some of his uh, earlier films and then when he passed away i watched i i did a, a tribute to paul and i went through mm. everything that was available that he acted in that was available on dvd i watched from his first project all the way through I I made it through Cars. I think there was a document, a racing <laughs> documentary, he narrated that I did not catch. After that, but um, gotcha, yeah, that was my my Paul Newman project. Wow, so. that's great, honoring the man, honoring the man, and uh, yeah, so Towering Inferno this. This was part of a whole subculture, a whole subgenre in in the seventies. The disaster films, and those were really unlike the rest of you know. We talk about the New Hollywood wave uh, from the late sixties into the early eighties and in in, uh, in the film business, but uh, these I don't these movies don't really fall under that umbrella. It's like they were still sort of had a hand in almost like the old. Studio system mm-hmm. um they just didn't you know they weren't as uh you know these stories weren't coming from the heart and weren't about you know, there was you know had nothing to do with things like Vietnam and Nixon and watergate and and everything that was going on as a society at the time it was just a straight adventure film
0: mm-hmm. yeah this is, um and it
1: yeah, this was something yeah. like like this was uh
0: and and was it uh, like a sort of a resurgence, in, like in the older, the olden days, they did a lot of like disaster kind of picks, and like this is sort of a a reignition. Like the the seventies disaster movies was sort of like a throwback, like maintaining that kind of thing, weren't there?
1: Yeah, I mean it was a throwback into to movies like Grand Hotel, which had uh, God Wallace Beery and John Barrymore and and just a huge all star cast. It was just a way to you know, modernize that into an action genre essentially. Mm-hmm. A- and it's so funny to call these action movies because there's really not a huge amount of action. There's a lot of suspense and, and some adventurous moments, but yeah. uh, you know, they are categorized as action.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, you don't really, there's no like disaster movie section of the video store, you know, but so you have, you kind of have to put it under that umbrella, but it's very specifically right. like a disaster movie, uh, you know drilling down into the types of action uh, that you can have
1: yeah and there's a whole slew of these films it started out you know hot with the poseidon adventure and even hotter with the towering inferno and then because of the success of those movies and we'll get into that a little more later a whole ton of imitations followed some of which were by the same production team and some were by different producers and directors and and uh another genre that wore itself out very quickly, mm-hmm. but still was able to stretch out almost a decade. Oh wow. So the, the this this so Poseidon and this
0: kind of kicked off ten years-ish of disaster films coming in.
1: Yeah, and let's you know, let's start talking about uh the man who really spearheaded the whole thing. Irwin Allen was sort of a mega producer of the day. Uh, he started out as a, as a TV producer in the sixties, um, with the, uh, I'm sorry, not a TV. He started out as a feature producer, um, with the original version of the lost world and voyage to the bottom of the sea, and then morphed into television, making a TV show out of voyage to the bottom of the sea, um, as well as lost in space. So he's really, um, you know, expanding the, the sort of the science fiction genre, Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd heard a, I guess it's a rumor that he had met with Gene Roddenberry to figure out ways to stretch, you know, creatively work some story ideas through. And how would you do like, he met with Roddenberry, but how would you take voyage to the bottom of the sea and make that a series? And then, basically took all Roddenberry's ideas and, and used them and never credited him. And there was, I think there was some, some heat between the two of them for quite some time. Oh. But Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea is a, you know, a fairly big budget movie for the day. And the, he was able to make it as a series because he reused a lot of the sets from, from the film and also used a lot of stock footage. So mm-hmm. finding creative ways to make it seem, like a bigger budget show than it actually was. Mm -hmm. But obviously that was a big hit show and so was lost in space. Uh, And by the early seventies was able to kind of move back into feature films from the success of his series. Uh, And Poseidon adventure was one of the first big movies he made. And it was, and it was a big risk. It's a, it's a big budget movie. Uh, But again, he, he was able to get a, a really strong cast not quite as large as this movie but you know established names Gene Hackman very early in his career uh I think took that movie you know as a as a as another way to boost his profile I mean it was mm-hmm. 1972 so he we just covered French Connection a few weeks ago mm-hmm. uh but this is before Night Moves uh, before The Conversation so he had French Connection under his belt but not really that many other uh, big movies, so this was sort of a follow up to that. And Pasan Adventure is great. I love that movie. Have you Have you seen that one?
0: I haven't seen it uh, in its entirety. I feel like I watched half an hour on television once, but I haven't. But catching it in the middle and, and you know, just yeah, I, I haven't sat down and, and seen it. So um.
1: it's great. It's 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 really it's it's a good time. I mean, it's him, Ernest Borgnine, red buttons, a very young. Uh, pre-comedy Leslie Nielsen, when his career was in the uh, mm. doldrums. Yeah. Is that the right word? Can I say that? I guess. Is that it, legal? Is it doldrums? Is that what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he was a straight
0: actor for for years and years, right? So he did yeah, westerns yeah. <laughs> and all sorts of cop. Didn't he do cop shows? I don't know. But yeah, this, that Poseidon, well, I'd would want to do maybe on the next hackathon if we ever do hackathon again so you know i don't know oh we'll do
1: hackathon again maybe that'll be an annual thing yeah um but yeah so
0: so leslie like, nielsen he, like was there other other folks uh it wasn't shelly shelly winters uh
1: shelly winters yep roddy yep. mcdowell uh, roddy mcdowell yeah uh mike brady was in it i think mike brady was oh, no was... no mike brady was is he in this he's in this one
0: oh bobby brady's in the in Towering and Bobby Brady, not
1: Mike yeah, 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 yeah. the kid Mike Brady, but was there's like a that. Anyway. yeah <laughs> um, I was saying Mike Brady because we talked about that, how Gene Hackman almost played Mike Brady, um yeah <laughs> in our French connection episode, yeah, <laughs>
0: so like these are uh these are precursors to when did the original Oceans Eleven movie come out? I'm thinking. Oh, that was
1: in the that was in the 60s, 60s. I believe. Was that late, a... late 60s with Frank Sinatra and the gang?
0: Yeah. So that was a star-studded cast. So I'm like, this, you know, there's there's mm-hmm. a there's a, a a need for big stars and 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 familiar faces in these like in these ensemble pictures, right? Like, so this is just yeah, a, totally kind of continuing a trend of that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and with the success of Poseidon Adventure, they kind of tried to one up that with this movie. And this has gotten even bigger cast and even bigger production design element, bigger ambitions, uh, needed more of it, of everything. And, uh, it, it, you know, for, for them, it, it worked on this one. But this is sort of the, really like the peak of it to me. Um, you know, everything after this would be, Sort of a pale imitation. Some of them work. I mean, some of them are are fine, are, are you know even enjoyable. But none of them felt like they were. All the, everything was working like Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. Those those really are the best. So yeah, it's kind of downhill after this one. Quite quite a a one two punch for
0: for Alan. Then I mean, what a like to, to sort of strike gold twice. You know, to kind of go bigger uh And to have that actually, you know, surpass the original, like you know, or surpass Poseidon, um, just goes to show like how talented he was. I guess as a as a guy, I mean, with all that work, I mean, all that TV work for a for decade in the '60s. uh, I mean, guys knows what he's doing.
1: (laughs) Well, he he was definitely a uh, what you'd call a mega producer back then. Sort of what Joel Silver became of the '80s. Yeah, he he was that version of the of the seventies. I mean, it was a, it was a big gamble to do it. And, and the, the kind of the making of this movie is really interesting. There were, um, do you know about the books, the book versions of, of where these, this was based off of?
0: I don't know the titles, but I know this, this is sort of an amalgamation of, of two, two different books concepts about a tower on fire. (laughs) Is that that
1: it? Yeah, basically there's two, Totally different books, or not totally two different books being written simultaneously that are essentially about the same thing. <laughs> that a there is a fire in a giant, brand new, giant building that was just constructed with a party going on, a celebration going on on like the top floor. Uh, there's a little bit of a difference of like how they, you know, what started the fire in each one. Mm-hmm. So. Warner Brothers ends up developing a book called *The Tower*, written by Richard Martin Stern. Uh, they they option it for about four hundred thousand, and this book has the character of uh, Will Giddings, who is in the film. He is played by Norman Burton. He's one. Of, he's like Paul Newman's friend in the beginning of the movie, who ends. He's like the first person who gets lit on fire, and spoiler mm-hmm. alert, dies. Yeah. Um, so that character, it's got the the William Holden Richard Chamberlain storyline. Um, so you know those those characters yeah. were from the Tower, uh, but this in that book it was started by a disgruntled employee who sets off a bomb in the basement of the building. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was criminal. Yeah, did not happen in the movie.
0: That's criminal.
1: <laughs> um at the same time that Warner brothers is developing this Fox is developing the other book called the glass Inferno written by uh, Thomas Scorsia and Frank Robinson. And they optioned it for about 300,000 and, and basically the same plot. This has the architect, uh, the Doug Roberts character and the uh, fire chief, the Michael Halloran character. Uh, so that's where these, they have different names in this book, but that's where those characters came from. So Erwin Allen, kind of hearing the buzz and the word on the street and looking for a follow-up to Poseidon Adventure, had found these books and realized that two different studios were going to end up competing with each other and convinced them to, and I believe this is the first time this was ever done, was do a true co-production. I I don't think that it happened before this one.
0: Yeah, this was like a a complete 50-50 split, right? Between the two in terms of... uh... The, the the budget and, and production and everything like like a complete cooperative thing between the two studios right Fox and Warner Brothers
1: yeah they uh, they agreed on a fourteen million dollar budget seven million from each studio Fox would distribute the movie domestically Warner Brothers would distribute internationally and they would take the whatever the you know whatever the uh, you know income was from from those areas they would each take. So, if if it bombed domestically and was a hit internationally, Warner Brothers would have would have won out and and but uh, you know, it was a, and they both ended up okay. Let's just say that much.
0: Yeah, yeah. Huh. <laughs> um
1: and the books were like inspired by the creation of the World Trade Center and the thought of God forbid what if something a disaster were to happen in one of those buildings and kind of eerie foreshadowing in a way yeah of course so once they get you know the wheels in motion to get the production going the big piece was you know I think working out the script he had hired Sterling Siliphant uh, who also did Poseidon Adventure if Erwin uh, Allen wanted to keep as much of his team together used the same costume designer he uh, you know he's one of the early producers who used uh, uh, John Williams uh this is one of his first uh first really big movies that he scored. Oh wow. Um yeah, so and it sounds like completely different style of John Williams than what we grew up with and what we know now.
0: Sure. Well did and he scored po- Poseidon, right? I think Yeah, he did
1: that's what I mean he did Poseidon and they you know, oh. he tried to keep the, the crew that he used for Poseidon oh, gotcha. also on this movie. Oh, okay, gotcha. So what once he started nailing down some of those um department heads it was obviously time to cast the film, and and Sterling Silliphant figured out a way to pick and choose which characters from which books and kind of merge them together and get. Yet, as a screenplay, I don't know. I, you know, I I don't think th- there's not that much to it. There's not a lot of brain power going on. Oh, in terms of like what character, like actual character story? And yeah, stuff? I, yeah, it's it's right. The story is pretty straightforward and simple, and basic characters, and there's not. It's not really about developing the characters. That's not what the movie is. Right, so.
0: right. It's it's people being put in a, a quite a perilous uh, and very rare situation, and the the tension right. that builds throughout. I mean, yeah, there there are a bunch of little like storylines to at least give you some connection for some of these characters because you know as things go on you don't know who's going to live or die and things get more more dire so um yeah i I wasn't sitting watching the movie like well like what's his deal (laughs) like you know everyone is (laughs) everyone's pretty much like i think effectively given a you know a a personality um without having to you know dive deep into like their their you know their mental state or whatever (laughs) but uh uh, yeah but that's the funny thing like yeah because the story is so like straightforward in terms of like what 's happening and like basically everyone reacting and i i i i f i feel like i feel like the thrills are there with that, and then um you're just sort of like along for the ride, i guess right like you you you're not doing a lot of thinking about it
1: yeah i mean the the script is basically there to get them in the same place. For this to happen, and then it's essentially all visuals. I mean, that that's what you're you're looking for in this movie. Uh, the script is just going to get them. Why are they here? You know, how did they get here? That's it. We don't need their whole life story. We don't need to know the emotions underneath everything, other than the obvious, because it's it's literally just dealing with what's happening right now. So yeah. it just didn't require it. So yeah. uh the you know the big question was who's going to play some of these roles, and uh, the the bigger role was the architect originally, the Doug Roberts role. Uh So they actually wanted McQueen, Steve McQueen, for that character. Um, and and you know before I guess before we get into it, let's just sum up the plot real quick. If for those that that don't remember it or haven't seen it and are listening to the show for some reason uh there is a grand celebration of this uh giant monstrous tower in San Francisco that's just been built and you know one of the world's uh, biggest buildings or tallest buildings and everybody involved with the project is on hand for this grand opening gala celebration mm-hmm. they've got the the architect of the building and the owner of the building the manager of the building the mayor the the whole bunch of press there a lot of uh, all the, you know, San Francisco VIPs.
0: Yes. I think a senator. One of the characters is a senator. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I believe that's Robert Vaughn. Yeah, I believe that's Robert Vaughn. Oh,
0: okay, got it. Oh, yes, yes, you're right.
1: Um, yeah. But uh, so, you know, and, and, and as the, once they're up there, a of course, a fire breaks out in the building, trapping everyone in one of the top floors. So it's a race against time to rescue the people and you're seeing it from different points of view of those that are stuck in there and wherever they're stuck if it's in the town you know inside the party or in different parts of the building and then from the uh, fire chief as he's trying to lead the rescue operation Hmm. Uh, the casting process was really interesting originally what they wanted mcqueen as the architect And it looked like Ernest Borgnine, of all people, was going to play the fire chief, Michael Halloran, which made sense. Ernest Borgnine was one of the leads in Poseidon Adventure. He's great in that movie. He was a a big-level star at the time. Um, It would have been interesting to see that play out. I don't know if it would have drawn in what the true casting ended up being. And McQueen actually... Was more fascinated with the fire chief, but the architect was the lead. So he offered that he take the fire chief role, expand that role so it's bigger and, you know, would be a better, more suitable character for him to play. And then let somebody else of his kind of A-level caliber play the architect. Ah. Now... Yeah, so McQueen had a had a you know a creative hand in in the the formation of this, but he wanted uh, Clint Eastwood or Burt Reynolds or Robert Redford to play that role. Hmm. Now, do you know the whole back? There's a whole backstory to Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. Do you, are you aware of this?
0: I think do we chat about it on our Slapshot episode a bit, but I'm I'm a little fuzzy on it today.
1: So it goes back to a movie called Somebody Up There Likes Me, and it is a uh, it's a Paul Newman movie where he plays Rocky Rocky Marciano, and uh, who is a you know famous boxer. And while they were making this movie, McQueen, it, it's either I can't remember if he's got a really small part or he's an extra, and there was some kind of blow up. There's 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 a rumor that. Newman had a limousine outside the set and they were, they were shooting out in the rain and McQueen ended up like getting in the limo because he was freezing and Newman's driver like went off on him and kicked him out and I don't know if that's totally true but there was definitely some kind of something that happened that uh, you know really rubbed McQueen the wrong way and he yelled a major grudge against Paul Newman for for the rest of his career and I guess his life. Um, He was always using Newman as a goal to strive for, to outdo Paul Newman, and to kind of top whatever his last movie was. Hmm. Uh, Really fascinating look. I mean, Cincinnati Kid is one of those, it's a complete, you know, attempt to outdo what Newman did in The Hustler, and uh, you know, there's just, there's a, a lot going on there if you look at their careers and where McQueen is going and he's trying to just stay out of the curve and ahead of Newman. But, and I think by this point, McQueen was at his height in the early, you know, late sixties and early seventies, whereas Newman's career kind of spanned a much longer period of time. And of course, you know, with, with McQueen's death, Newman would go on to have a great career much, much more uh, later on as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, McQueen is really not that excited about, uh, you know, offering the movie to Newman, but Irwin Allen felt like he was one of the only people of McQueen's level that would make sense. If they're going to have those two characters be equal, you know, there's really only a couple of people. Even Redford was still on the rise at this point. He, I don't think he had hit his peak yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's interesting. So, Uh, there's a whole thing going on with, if you look at the credits, the billing of McQueen and Newman, uh, is really interesting. So everything was supposed to be equal. They, they had, they, they both got, would get the same amount of screen time, the same amount of dialogue, the same money. Mm. They both took a $1 million fee plus 10% of the gross, which was, yeah, which was, uh,
0: they both yeah, got ten percent of the gross. Holy shit! Ten percent. Wow.
1: Yep. Which was a great. Ended up being a great financial move. We'll we'll talk about Newman's reaction to that. Remind me to come back to that later. But sure. if you look at the billing, who's who's going to get top billing, and how do you do that if they're both equal? Physically, how do you do that? What's your idea, David?
0: Well, I think of a I think of a, a classic poster from what is it is it what's the movie with damon waynes and bruce willis what is that the longest no oh last boy scout last boy scout i have uh there's a poster uh, which is the classic move you see a poster with the two lead like the two co-lead actors on it but then above their pictures you swap the names so you're you're getting a visual of them in one way and then you swap the names and then you know they're both basically top build uh and I feel like that's something that happened with this. Maybe on the... I haven't actually seen any of the posters. I haven't looked up any of the posters. But I did w- I did notice watching the credits where you'd normally list uh, character and actor or actor and character uh, on a list. Their two names were not part of the list. They were above that list. And then like really big fonts. And then I think askew, right? Like they weren't...
1: Yeah. Like, that's the trick. Ah... So technically, McQueen gets first billing because it is on the left. You know, reading it left to right, as as we humans do. Uh, McQueen is on the lower left, but Newman is bumped up to the top right. So mm. Newman is technically above McQueen, but McQueen is before Newman. I see. Huh. And then I think they switch it in the end credits. I believe it's the reverse. So it's uh, very you know, a lot of that is ego driven. It's, it's, I I think it's probably on both their parts, but it feels like a little bit more on McQueen's. Um, but that was how they were able to get it by and, and everyone was seemingly happy with it after that.
0: Yeah. It's, it's one of those little, those little token things that, you know, you hear about with, with actors that they're, they're, place in the hierarchy you know number one on the call Mm -hmm. sheet kind of situation Mm -hmm. as much as they might be powerful wealthy can pick their own projects they still are pretty much you know the ego controls a lot of their decision making so you gotta massage that ego keep them happy
1: well i do think that was a big part of what was going on with mcqueen at the time i mean becoming a star even even to, all the way through today, especially today, you know, and you don't just become a star uh, by luck. It, it is right. it is helped along the way by a lot of people: agents, managers, producers, um, marketing people. It's all carefully crafted in order to get someone to that position, and in order to stay there, you have to really. You know, it's a full time job of just like what is your image and how do you want it portrayed and what are the right kinds of movies? McQueen, both these guys were were very picky about the movies that they did, and especially being the you know in, in this time period, they weren't doing throwaway movies. Uh, some of them, some of the movies they did didn't work out that well, but maybe the script was really fantastic or the idea that the director pitched them was was amazing and. And uh, McQueen, let's talk about McQueen first. I mean, he's coming off a a huge part of his career with uh, Bullet and Papillon and The Cincinnati Kid and The Getaway. Those are all movies going right into, into this film. And so he's kind of at a creative high and he's starting to work with Sam Peckinpah. And he just really, he also turned down a tremendous amount of movies that, might've just taken his career in a different direction. I mean, he ended up turning down French connection as we, we talked about, but he also turned down apocalypse. Now the bodyguard. And yes, that's the Kevin Costner bodyguard that was originally written uh, or attempted to be made in the, in the seventies. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he turned down a bridge too far. He turned down Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. He was originally supposed to play the Sundance kid and, I think that was another wow. um, issue between the two of them. Of I don't think he wanted to work directly. You know, feel like he was <clears throat> in 1969 working underneath Paul Newman. Right. Um, right. He turned down Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He turned down Dirty Harry. He turned down multiple roles in First Blood.
0: Holy cow! He
1: turned down both. He turned down both Rambo and Colonel Troutman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is he? What? So it's just. What? It's a. All of he had the, yeah. all those offers, Yeah. all those, yeah holy cow
1: and and more, I'm sure, I'm sure I mean I course. know there's others too, but but those are uh, so many know, had...
0: big movies those are so many like staple you know uh anchors of cinema that he could have been a part of, you know not that not like not every one of his movies past the like are necessarily mm-hmm. you know big the big ones, so it's clearly like a you know he was picking the the roles that that drew him in right I mean not not yeah, not totally. the not the the scope or or anything about the you know the hollywood of it all kind of thing i'm assuming
1: yeah and the interesting thing is you know after this movie comes out he took 4 years off and didn't really do anything uh, he you know he took a break and the movies that he came back with in the late 70s i don't believe any of them were really big hits um And then he ended up getting sick with cancer and and passing away in 1980 or 81. And uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a uh, what could have been had McQueen lived. I mean, I I think he would have had ended up having some great roles in the 80s as he got a little older and started, you know, taking those kind of roles. I mean, he would have been great as Colonel Troutman. Come on,
0: yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: It could have. You probably could have made that character, uh, and you know, really expanded that character a little bit too. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he would have been would have been interesting. But um, and Newman, as far as Newman goes, I mean, he's of course he's done The Hustler and Hud and Cool Hand Luke and uh, Butch Cassidy and so many classic, amazing roles. And if if any of you guys haven't taken a look at Paul Newman's career in the '60s. You could pretty much just go from start to finish, and and almost everything's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Harper, Ombre, a lot of his movies start with H. That was a whole thing with him. Uh, that was he felt like he was riding a wave of of good luck with uh, titles that had started with the letter H. So, and I think he was correct about that. But, <laughs> um... Sure. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So he's he's but he also after this movie. You know, hits a bit of a bumpy road in the seventies and then comes back in sort of the early eighties with the verdict and, and uh color of money and, and some other great things uh later on. But uh mm-hmm. it was an interesting kind of like second half of the seventies after this movie came out for both these guys. But Newman's coming off of, of uh The Sting, which is a huge, you know, Oscar level movie. Um mm-hmm. Uh, amazing film uh, directed by George Roy Hill and his second team up with Robert Redford, uh, first of which was Butch Cassidy, uh, the Macintosh Man, and Judge R- the Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. Both of those last two, not some of his better films. You know, Newman was strong in everything he did, uh, but it wasn't the movies didn't always turn out the way it should have. So interesting coming into this movie, but uh, both are still at the. You know, they're, these guys are at like, I don't know, who would you say now? Like, who's like a Tom Cruise level right now? Is Tom Cruise still at Tom Cruise level?
0: He is always at Tom Cruise level. Absolutely. <laughs> that's that's why there's going to be a Top Gun two. That's that. Everyone wants to see that. Everyone. at morning.
1: some point, at some point, there will be a Top Gun two, and mind you we will be covering that movie before that that sequel comes out. <laughs> great.
0: <laughs> Definitely but, uh, looking forward to that.
1: Let's talk about the rest of the cast. This is, you know, this is indeed an all-star lineup and this is just a great great group of actors. Many of which don't have a hell of a lot to do in this movie, but <laughs> but they're there. They're standing there in group shots together. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, William Holden's career, you know, we mentioned was was uh, an amazing body of work with a lot of ups, ups and downs and a very interesting, uh, you know, life story. He would ultimately end up kind of a sad way around the same. I believe it was around the same time as as mcqueen that he ended up he was an alcoholic and ended up having some kind of like he fell and hit his head when he was super drunk one night at his apartment and didn't take care of it ended up passing out and bleeding to death and that was that was the end of william holden's uh, kind of illustrious career
0: oh wow that's terrible
1: yeah it was uh, unfortunate but But he's great in this movie is the i believe he's the owner of the building correct
0: yeah or well i guess so like the the, because isn't he the one that i mean he and paul newman like doesn't he offer like you design the buildings i build them so i think he's either the yeah he's the he's the owner like he's the main financier of, of of these projects so yeah yeah he's the guy in charge right
1: Right, it's a it's a little like there's a bunch of people who have hands in the creation of this building. You've got William Holden. You've got, of course, uh, Newman as the architect. You've got Richard Chamberlain, who was sort of taking the plans and and uh, you know, I it's a little unclear exactly what he his title is in this, but he was also had a hand in developing it because he would take you know, what Doug Roberts would or Paul Newman would design as the architect and really enact those plans. Right. But he, not necessarily as we as we learn, not necessarily the way that Paul Newman designed them.
0: Right. Well, then and like it it looks like you, you for the audience, you can see like, oh, it's all Richard Chamberlain's like fault at the beginning as this like disaster starts to happen. And then you you learn that William Holden, like had given him that direction, like, you know, he's got to save money. But he and he was telling him because I think Richard Chamberlain's character is basically like the main electrical engineer, like in, like part of the, the design installation, all of that. So he used they all they all like say we used everything that at the minimum of like building codes, what what the building codes require. But right. Paul Newman, their dog is like, a, but a building like this, this like basically state of the art futuristic kind of building would require the best of the best to make sure it can handle the load of, of right of, of electrical and people and all of that so uh, yeah so you know Doug had his recommendations of what to use and then they diminished it down to what's legally acceptable uh, and but of course leaving Doug out of the out of the loop so uh, which he never would have approved of but uh, you know so it was all right but- all about saving that money
1: basically once doug roberts turned in the plans and they were approved his role in the project is done so what they you know did after he made the designs is not really he wouldn't have been aware of it and he's just coming back i think for you know the first time since the building is finished
0: yeah i mean there's still some work being done and they still have because like the architectural offices are still in the building but yeah he's been away because he's working on other projects i think right like he was just out doing mm-hmm. others they they don't really
1: right you know, exact what an actual architect would be doing
0: yeah 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 so he was probably there in the initial a lot of those initial phases in the building at a certain point but he's been gone for a long time and now he he's he stuck with trying to to save the day, uh, but yeah, that's uh, so. Yeah, they, so yeah, you've got you've got some sort of heroes, and you've got some um, some villainess, and then some gray, some gray matter. You know, Richard Chamberlain sort of has no, he doesn't have any kind of moral regret, where it seems like uh, Jim or uh, William Holden is, is has some regret about this, realizing what he's responsible for
1: right and also let's mention that richard chamberlain's character is william holden's son-in-law i believe correct
0: yes yeah so yeah he's married to to susan blakely who plays uh, william holden's daughter so right so nepotism
1: uh right (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's gonna bite him in the ass um and what's robert wagner's role i was i was always unclear like he's somebody else who's involved with it and some kind of Pro, you know, maybe the project manager uh, who's, uh, you know, high up with these guys. Um But I always felt like Robert Wagner's role was there, there's a lot of people in this movie. Mm-hmm. Robert Wagner's role is one that I felt like wasn't really necessary. Right.
0: Yeah. you Did c- you feel that way? Yeah, you could kind of cut him out entirely and then cut that little subplot with him um and sa- shave a couple minutes off um but i do feel like it's effective because isn't he the very f- first person to die i think in the movie like it's sort yeah, of yeah well
1: it's a, it's a it's a it's a great scene so basically like he's up there you know meeting with uh, you know william holden and and chamberlain and and paul newman and then he kind of steps away because he's having an affair with his secretary yeah. and they end off they end up like going off together and are separated from everybody. And later on, once the fire starts, he's his death is like the first sh- really shocking moment and I think the first, you know, real <clears throat> name celebrity to uh to die in the movie. Yeah, I think it But that scene that was really disturbing, like where they're they're trapped in their room. By the time they realize there's a fire, it's like engulfed the entire office that's outside their their room. Mm-hmm or the penthouse or whatever it is they're in. And he's got to like, there is either like go out the window of, you know, the 60th floor, whatever he's on, or try to, you know, make it across the room and out. And that slow motion prolonged death scene is just kind of excruciating.
0: Yeah. It's it's really terrifying because when you're with them and they, you see, he, he, he hides from her, like the truth for a little bit, like knowing like they can't get out. And it's just sort of in like in a panic. And then the the sort of the truth comes out and then he he decides like he can he'll soak himself in wet towels, he can run really fast. Um he's gonna give it a try. And I mean he's immediately overwhelmed and and, and, and burns to death. And then she uh like understands what's about to happen and then she she has a terrible <laughs> she has a terrible death too. So these characters who had nothing to do with anything have there's no there's no uh moral sort of uh judgment on these characters. That's the thing. Like anyone anyone can die, essentially. This this one sets it up. Yeah. Like anyone can die now. So good
1: luck. <laughs> and it doesn't pull any punches either. I mean they show it, you know, his death especially well, both of their deaths are, are really um I guess graphic for the day, outside of, you know, the the slasher movies that were coming up. I mean it was like you really thinking about like, what would you do in these people's positions? Like that's the really, I guess, true horror kind of element of the movie of, of psychological horror.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, I don't want to like reference, like, you know, I don't want to talk too deeply about the real life parallels of, uh, of, of the twin towers, but I mean, you sort of knowing what we know of what happened to people who were trapped on floors, the upper floors Mm -hmm. and who, who chose to end their own lives rather than burn to death. I mean, you can't help but think while you're watching this movie, like, I, and I mean, for me as a first time, I'm like, are they, is, is are they going to jump out the window? Like, I mean, are they, you know, are they like, what's going to happen to them? Um, but that, I, th- I feel like you can understand that terror of, of that, you know, in the moment, like mm-hmm. that really desperate choices are going to be made uh, in this, like really impossible situation. So, um, yeah. yeah. And then to, just just to see them like to, to go, to go down is, is just awful. <laughs> like, and it, it, I, I feel like, yeah, it really set the tone going forward. Like this is, this is tense. Like anything can happen. And then you've got hundreds of people upstairs essentially. So what's right. going to happen to them? <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah. it, it really hooks you, I think. So they're, yeah. And that, that go ahead. They're necessary. So basically they're necessary. And I guess, it's good we didn't spend too much time on with robert ragner like so they set him up they set it up and then they give you a little piece and then they they kill him. so it's like you know now, mm-hmm. now here are the stakes um so if you cut them out entirely i feel like this you're still going to have big stakes but you'd have to do it you'd have to do it with somebody i guess
1: right i mean that was the thing like especially uh, you know looking back on it now it's you know i i thought the character was unnecessary but uh, he, it is one of the more memorable deaths and it does set that table of like up oh, all right well if he can go then anybody can go
0: yeah 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 cuz he was in the room and that
1: cocky sorry that cocky uh you know like look back right before he leaves and you know talks about how he used to run however fast and yeah. and he so he just got that like robert wagner cocky <laughs> Movie star thing, and yeah. then it almost immediately overtaken with flames. Like, he does <laughs> not get far at all.
0: Yeah, they, they, there's no sense of hope. Like, you know, if, if you wanted to do it more dramatic and more, uh, manipulative, uh, for like an action movie, you get him 90% of the way before he's overtaken versus the mm-hmm. him dying like 15% of the way in, <laughs> you know, that it was just right. a, an impossible situation. He thought he was quicker than fire, and, uh, and it graphically goes down like the stunt work all the all the people other people uh burn to death in this movie and a lot of that fire stunt work is so i know we'll talk about that i'm sure um but it's so well done and just in terms of showing really the, the peril and i mean you're doing them at like kind of wide shots obviously to hide like you know the the uh the technical aspects of like protecting the the person but right my god i mean the, the these fire stuntmen are just incredible with this stuff
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh, amazing amazing stunts in the movie but uh, before we get to that god there's so many actors to talk about fred astaire is in the movie um which is you know david's favorite actor we all know that he talks about him every week mm-hmm. uh, and they <laughs> Uh, a storyline with Jennifer Jones and what would be her final movie. Mm. Uh, O.J. Simpson, of course, we mentioned. Uh, he's mostly in the beginning of the movie, and then we see him again at the end. But I think most of the central part of the movie, he's he's not there because he's on the ground. I think.
0: Yeah, well, like he's in you know he's in the center of the building, the security offices, and then. He's, he initially is part of the final, the people who find the fire. And then he is part of the one rescue. I th- think with the kid and uh, all that. Yeah. I don't, and then, yeah, you don't see him because he's taken care of, I think the kid's mom or whatever. And then, yeah, you see him later taking care, like helping out. So he's established. And then whenever you see him, it, you know, it, it makes sense for you to, to see him in it. Um Which, uh yeah. Uh, it, there was so many different moving parts to like fighting this, fighting the, this inferno. Um, right. Or, or at least trying to get people out and s- save people. So a lot of different moving parts happening all at the same time, which is a real credit to like how the, the, this whole thing is edited and, and well just in, in the, and in the screenplay. I mean, it's, I think it's a really well put together movie with in terms of who we who we have to track what's happening next, Keeping that tension going. I mean, I guess there might be some lulls in there. Yeah, yeah. there's some slowdowns. Yeah, there's. Yeah. I guess you. I guess it's it's there. But I mean, it's still overall pretty tight. Um, so like having a, a familiar face. Oh, like revisiting. Like, oh yeah, what's going on with that guy? What's he doing now? You know, they there's because there's so many people. Um, we didn't even mention. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, Faye Dunaway, playing.
1: No, yeah, I was saving the best for last.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, I ruined it. I ruined <laughs> no, it's <the> okay. <laughs> but like, she's the love interest to to Doug Roberts, Paul Newman, and um, you know, she is uh, she is part of this peril uh, through through the entire film.
1: Yeah, uh, Faye Dunaway. Another, you know, not again, not a lot for her to do in this movie. Of course, she's one of the top actresses of of the day, especially after uh, that star making performance in Bonnie and Clyde but this you know she's she's Doug Roberts's girlfriend and you know love interest and she is stuck up at the party and most a lot of reaction shots from her yeah. not a lot she's not really doing much but um apparently she was uh, a little challenging on the set and I've heard numerous stories of her on set behavior uh, especially in the early '70s, and she was constantly showing up late, and you know, unprepared, not ready. Mm. The cast and ever the whole set was waiting for her multiple times, and it was driving William Holden and Jennifer Jones, who were kind of the veteran, you know, actors of this group, driving them crazy. And William Holden like pulled her aside and like threw up her against a wall and just went off on her. Oh. And then every. Every day after that, she was on time, knew her lines, and it was, uh, I think he sort of set her straight there. And then the funny thing is they ended up working together again and network a few years later as, like, a <laughs> love interest. <so. laughs> How about that? Oh, wow. <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, not a lot for her to do, but she still gr- finds a way to be great in this movie. And, yeah. Uh, Robert Vaughn we mentioned, so it's a little bit of a magnificent seven reunion with robert vaughn and steve mcqueen Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and robert vaughn i believe is the senator there's also a mayor there um Mm -hmm. uh the bartender played by gregory sierra who i love if anyone's familiar with the early days of miami vice he's the uh the forgotten police chief before edward james almost takes over
0: i see okay i didn't know that
1: (laughs) yeah that makes sense um And a lot of other faces throughout the movie. Uh, You know, it's, you've got a lot happening. I mean, once the fire breaks out, it's, you know, it starts, it's an electrical fire in one of the storage closets. And, you know, they're trying, they know about the fire, they're trying to put it out, but this gala opening is about to happen and they were not going to cancel it, assuming they could get the, you know, William Holden was not going to cancel that party. He was assuming that the fire would be taken care of and it wouldn't get to the point where people were in danger. Of course, it doesn't go that way. And then you've got your group stuck up on the, you know, stuck up in the party, a few people kind of scattered throughout the building. And then at 43 minutes into the movie, we finally meet Steve McQueen from the fire department, who's going to Helps try to save the day here.
0: Yeah, well, and I was looking throughout the movie, like I'm like, when's Dabney Coleman gonna show up? Because I saw him in those those interest <laughs> right. in the the intro credits, and um and he he doesn't show up. I think until it's a two hour and forty four ish minute movie. I think he shows up right at the two hour mark, maybe, probably later. <laughs> like, oh yeah, he's, he's way towards the end. Yeah, yeah, he's right at the end, basically setting up what what uh, Chief Halloran has to do. To save the day, um, and, I, and I'm. I'm I, did you
1: catch who is? Did you catch who is with uh, Damney Coleman in that scene? I, I don't know if you know who he is, but the the guy, I think he's on Damney Coleman's. I believe he's on his right. Um, but, uh,
0: I didn't actually notice. No, who was it?
1: It was an actor by the name of Olin Soule, mm. and he was the man who did most famously uh, did the voice of Batman in the. Uh, 1970s and super friends and scooby-doo and anywhere there was an animated batman that was uh olin soul oh
0: wow okay oh i didn't know yeah.
1: that
0: he was the yeah, yeah the original well this the early days batman that's
1: the, the pre kevin conroy batman conroy but yes yeah wow uh yeah so uh and then as a as a production I mean, this movie is huge. They took over eight stages at Fox. Yeah, eight stages. (laughs) Huge.
0: That's I mean, the dozens and dozens of sets, right? Like, just...
1: Yeah, I mean, the the crew size, they had multiple units going. The crew size was basically double what a normal uh, features crew size was. Um, They had a whole, you know, special effects unit going on that would do a lot of the, you know, the... Mm -hmm the explosions and the firework and the, the stunt work was its own unit. Yeah. And then you'd have a separate unit with the actors. And of course there's different size scale versions of the sets based on what's going on and Mm -hmm. miniatures and just a tremendous amount going into this movie. It's huge.
0: Yeah. The, the, the model tower is impressive uh, for, for what it is. You see it mostly from the bot, like from the ground uh, to give you that sense of height and scale. And then, you keep mm-hmm. getting shots of like when a floor, an entire floor, blows out when on fire, and you see it. You just get little pieces. You don't have to see the actual things happening on the floor. You just see the fire continuing to encroach further and further up. Um, right. It's like right. this, just like ticking time bombed getting up to the top floor um, to, th- mm-hmm. to threaten these people. Uh, but the and then they do a great they do an interesting shot of like from the air you know like where the models among the rest of the cityscape it's very tiny you know it's Mm -hmm. it's it's brief but it's uh it was it was impressive but i think you get the i think i read that the model itself was like 100 feet tall or something like i mean yeah yeah that's that's like nine stories ten stories like that's yeah that's that's, that's gigantic that's like that's taller than no that's not taller than a soundstage but that's that's pretty tall. Is that taller than a sounds Well,
1: yeah, and, and the the, right. the yeah, no, no. Uh, depends depends on the sound stage. But uh, yeah, that's true. Um, it's kind of brilliant production design by Bill Creeber, and you know he's a legendary production designer. And uh, you know this is one of those movies that if you're interested in in set design, this is kind of a good one to get to know mm-hmm. because of that, because of how many scale versions of things there were. You know they'd shoot the exteriors of all the buildings in San Francisco. I think there's a there was a Bank of America building that they used and a um, yeah. I think it was a Hyatt Regency that that uh, where they shot, you know, the lobby and the exteriors and then they kind of built the models to work it into the, you know, the the night skyline. So, uh, really interesting work and and there was like 57 sets and I think by the end only 8 of them survived.
0: Right so they all had to most of them had to burn <laughs> like most of them Right
1: I mean they burned down yeah the majority of them. Yeah I
0: mean, it was a total yeah a total uh, disaster for for every for every place you saw, for almost all the places you saw uh yeah. in the movie uh nothing was left standing fascinating Yeah and I mean th- yeah. this is like from a technical standpoint if you're interested in how movies are just made like you've got to, you've got to give it a, a hand. Of the just in terms of the scale of, of all of this, all of these prac everything is practical. You know, everything. Uh, there's, it's, and I mean, it's done on different scales for safety and everything. But right, I mean, but it's not, it's not CGI. Yeah, it's not CGI or just like, I mean, the fact that I'm sure there wasn't a lot of danger for the actual actors in the way they frame a lot of the scenes where they're in rooms with fire i'm sure that that's staged very well but there's there's it it's kind of um uh claustrophobic i mean but fi- once the fire gets going and they're in areas with fire and they're there and they've got to like kind of get away and all of that and they they move at their own pace you know they don't move with, like a panic a lot of the times but they're they understand mm-hmm. the threat um and then there's so many scenes of fire firemen uh, putting out fires in different corridors, you know, ripping down the ceilings, doing all the things to to prevent the spread and all that. I mean, so, and then, you know, there's a lot of jargon that if you're not familiar with how firemen do their jobs and what they have to think about, like this is a real like, well, it's, and it's in the beginning and the end of the film, like a, a basically an appreciation uh, is shown in the, yeah. in the credits for what these people, for what these guys do. Um, the professionals and the, the, the knowledge they n- need to have. Um, and they incorporate that. You know they don't fan- they don't um, romanticize well, a fireman's job in this. Um, it's all very like by, by the book. You can tell there's obviously like a, a lot of technical um, uh, technical aspects that were being held true. Uh, for this yeah and that's
1: one that's one of the things I love about McQueen, especially in this movie because he feels really real like he he feels like a firefighter, like a guy who would he looks and feels like a guy who would you know fight fires he's he doesn't uh he's got his movie star aura, but he fits the character right
0: absolutely yeah yeah
1: and he he went on uh he was he went on a few ride alongs when he was kind of studying firemen and and how they did their job and what they, what they do, and they were on a call where he just didn't wait behind. He jumped in there, put a mask on, and suddenly, like a fireman turned to his turned to his left, and like Steve McQueen is standing there holding the hose with him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's oh, it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he you know felt legit, and and they had. A tremendous amount of firemen who worked on the movie, um, who were helping on a technical way. So I, I, I think they really, you know, were as, I think they tried to be as accurate as they could and, and portray, you know, what these guys have to go through and, um, you know, how, how much they put their lives on the line to, to do their job. And, um, yeah, there was like something like uh, hundreds of firemen who ended up working on the movie. There was, uh, I think it was sixty stunt performers doing two hundred stunts, and I think like thirty of them were like death shots. You know? Oh
0: wow! Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah,
1: great, great stunt coordination by by Paul Stater. Uh, just a. Oh god another like they had their own unit and and LB Abbott was uh directing the special effects unit and erwin Allen was directing other second unit shots and there's just uh, so much going on all at once that, you know like you were saying before it really is a good uh production to kind of study about how to make a large scale movie at least back then
0: Yeah for sure like but I think the skeletons there have, you know you 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 can't uh, you can't sort of waltz your way through. Not that anyone waltzes their way through making a movie uh, of any size, but um, you know, a, a lot of care and attention was paid to so much, a lot of great coordination to to really put this thing together. You can just tell, like this is, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, an achievement on that, like just uh, an amazing thing. I mean, you know, it's funny the 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 uh, just to get back quick to the firemen again, like the um they're like i said they were not not the romanticizing of of it like it felt like everyone is in peril like these guys in their in their gear and everything and i mean you sh- you see them like you know having to deal with getting crushed by like falling you know debris and stuff like that and then, and at the end mm-hmm. after everything's resolved you saw body bags with their helmets so that not only are the in- innocent people up in the in the building you know have perished but uh also like an acknowledgement that these firemen um did you know w- can die and do die in doing their jobs um yeah so i mean I, it's it's just it's it's kind of cool to just to see like we're making a disaster film but we're gonna also honor the fact that like something like this could could happen when there was a mm-hmm. high-rise fire like a, the year before i think um uh, in in California I want to say where h- mm-hmm. hundreds of people died and so it's an acknowledgement of like this isn't we're not trying to exploit this for 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 any reason and, like you know we, we're trying to give a thrill to an audience but we're not like we don't want them laughing at the thrills we want them to feel like like threatened by it so like uh where the you know a lot of like action movies today and all that it's it's kind of exploitive of just you know uh of, of people dying in unnatural circumstances, Mm -hmm. but not really understanding that there's like, there's people that are there to protect you or save you. And sometimes they don't succeed. Um, So anyway, I don't know. I'm just, uh, just a big, big fan of that little aspect of this film as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a movie that, you know, firemen appreciate how they're, you know, portrayed in this versus a movie like and I love this movie but versus a movie like Backdraft yeah. which is you know totally theatrical and over the top and firemen are doing things certain things in that movie that they would not do and mm. um very entertaining movie on its own of course it's got our favorite Kurt Russell in it and we love it but uh, of different different level different level but even you know McQueen and and Newman are do a lot of their own stunts i mean as much as they could really get away with uh they were doing it themselves and and i think they prided themselves on that yeah i there there were a couple moments where
0: you realized that that like oh he actually did that like and it wasn't too dangerous but there's still things going on like oh you you didn't have to necessarily have them in there but they had that well yeah i
1: mean McQueen is jumping out of helicopters and Newman is that whole long sequence in the stairwell where Newman's trying to, uh, you know, get through this staircase that has been, you know, completely fire damaged and destroyed and he's got to climb, you know, climb down it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very it's the pacing of the movie really. It slows down in a few parts, and that's one of them, but you can tell that it's Newman doing at least a lot of those shots.
0: Yeah, it's pretty impressive that they, you know, you, you pause the rest of the action for, you know, he kind of survives this explosion. He has to, he cli- makes his way down. Uh, then we watch Mike Lookenland, Bobby Brady, climb down, mm-hmm. and then kind of, and then Newman goes back up <laughs> and then yeah. takes the little girl down. And then we watch with, um, Oh, who was the actress that played that? Wasn't that Jennifer Jones? That was Jennifer. Yeah. Was that Jennifer Jones? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Uh, anyway, well, she... And then she has to make her way down, and he sort of coaches her through it. And it is just like this... Kind of like this break in the tension, but also with its own tension. Kind of,
1: uh, you know... Right.
0: Kind of like that big Game of Thrones sequence when there was the big battle, the undead. And then you spent a whole act with... Uh, little Arya Stark in a library uh, avoiding them. And it's like a break in the tension, but still it's own tension, you know, uh,
1: kind of cool, man. That last season was so good. I so know. good. Oh my god! <laughs> if, if anything, don't watch the first seasons, just watch that last season at all. It's all it's you all. need. It's, That's all you need. It's all you need.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so good. Oh yeah. But, uh, Let's see. Where were we? Uh, so the movie ends up uh, coming out December 16th, 1974, and does big, big business. It um, ends up getting eight Oscar nominations. Can you believe that? Eight Oscars for The Towering Inferno nominations. Whoa. It doesn't, like, on the surface, it doesn't look like uh, what we know an, a, as an Oscar movie now, but of of the time, I, I guess, you know, it was still... Such a high caliber that they, you know, it, it got a few of them. It got, here's what it got nominated for mm-hmm. uh, Best Picture mm-hmm. did not win. No. Cinematography won. Uh, it was nominated for Sound, nominated for Editing, it won that one. Nominated for Score, uh, nominated for Song, which was We May Never Love Like This Again, the David Munchak theme song. Mm hmm. Uh, it won an Oscar for that, <clears throat> nominated for art direction, which it didn't win. Mm-hmm. And Fred Astaire was nominated as best supporting actor. How
0: about that? Good for him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> of all the people, he does have a, he does have some good moments. He's got this uh, love story going on with Jennifer Jones, and this kind of heartbreaking moment at the end when. He, you know, he comes out of the building and he's survived and he's looking for her and, and OJ Simpson comes up to him and just hands him her cat.
0: Oh yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the cat made it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, But not Jennifer Jones. No, but I mean what a year for, for movies uh, with Godfather two and Chinatown and the conversation, oh, yeah. like the fact that, that uh, Towering Inferno, you know, uh, hung in there with that many nominations and those wins, it says a lot about the what how people viewed it at the time. Um, yeah, and the quality of the of actual filmmaking, um, regardless of of things where you could criticize like storyline or whatever, um, still a, a great achievement in film. Mm-hmm. As well as absolutely, all those other, yeah, you know it's 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 in its own way, and the fact you know Fred Astaire could he have beaten Robert De Niro? It's possible, but.
1: <laughs> but you <the> also <laughs> that would have that would have been crazy crazy <laughs>
0: yeah well, well i guess best supporting actor was split three ways in the nominations too right with lee strasberg and uh michael yeah Grosso, right? or gazo what's his name um yeah yeah so i mean the you know sometimes you'd think the maybe that would have split the vote and give it give it but of course De Niro took it so um
1: yeah and that had to go godfather too Come yeah on. that's one of the best films of all time of course <laughs> still um, Box office-wise, this does really well. It opens uh, 2.3 million opening weekend. Uh, the domestic run was 116. And worldwide, I, I see a few different numbers. Box office is a little tricky to track, as we've mentioned yeah. uh, in these days. But I, I saw it, I think it was around 139 million worldwide. Oh, I
0: I had heard, wasn't it 200 million? But
1: I've also seen closer to 200 as well. So yeah. either way, does tremendous and... Uh, from a financial standpoint, for Newman and McQueen, taking that one million plus ten percent ended up being a really smart move. Oh yeah, but Newman was <clears throat> frustrated when the movie was over. That you know, especially after he saw it, he knew that the that Chief O'Halloran was the better character, ah. and he said that was the first that was the first time he went for the money instead of the the you know the the part and uh he regretted it It, it's like he didn't care about the money he would have rathered uh you know just have that better role right yeah i guess hollering has a better role but there's
0: but he got he got to do so much in uh as doug i don't know i i I get i understand like from an acting standpoint you know you want a a better role but uh the i guess i don't know i kind of i kind of like doug more a little just a slightly more than hollering uh I guess overall, but I mean, they're just, they're a duo. I mean, they're, they're, they're perfectly, yeah. they're perfectly made for each other and for this film. So uh, maybe, and maybe it's just well, like I mean, the Newman charm, you know, uh, that, that yeah, draws me. That's in. what I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, Newman's got that, like, you can't not like him, you know, he's so, he's so lovable. Uh, but and McQueen is a much more gruff kind of, you know, he's kind of pissed off most of this movie. He's angry at these people that they went through at the party. They weren't complying with what he was warning them and telling them to do. And then by the time they do, it was too late. And, uh, you know, a lot of them die unnecessarily, you know, from his point of view, unnecessarily. Absolutely. And at the end, the end scene, it's like sort of like. A little bit of an I told you so (laughs) um from McQueen to Newman and McQueen sort of gets the last word basically and uh you know I think it's just I think Newman didn't feel like he went out with that you know powerful moment that McQueen got that
0: yeah and I'm wondering if like you know a point of view particularly at the end you know I mean seeing that like there's so many things that cause needless death when it comes to fire and um you know i wonder if there's a that was mirroring you know probably uh the, like the real sentiments of, of these professional firefighters who risk their lives every day mm-hmm. that I, I feel like it's it, yeah it's sort of an indictment on like the carelessness of people like because he's like you guys are building buildings wrong you're not asking us how to build them safely which doesn't you know right. you you'd almost think like that doesn't really make sense but i'm maybe at the time especially in the 70s where Things are regulations are changing all over the place on on how buildings are being built and taller skyscrapers are, are being built. Maybe there was that mm-hmm. sentiment. I didn't look into that in terms of that pushback um, yeah. where things needed to be. Um, but, you know, when you have two characters who are basically responsible for this shouting, we did we did the minimum. <laughs> and then you have them being chided by um, by Doug uh, that the minimum wasn't enough. You need to do better right and now you've you've literally didn't i think what does he say like what do you call it when you kill somebody i think was the quote like <laughs> i was like and then and then james just had to like just sit with that like understanding what he did like uh, yeah what, what is a great moment
1: yeah, yeah. and it's funny because it's not like you know newman's character like didn't design it that way like he designed it correctly it's the rest of them who didn't follow through with what you know he recommended yep Yep. so it's like it's like mcqueen's kind of taken out on newman but he should have been taking it out on william holden who um you know also survives but uh yeah and then um let's see the movies number two of 1974 right right behind it couldn't top financially couldn't quite top Mel Brooks is Blazing Saddles. How
0: about that? Blazing Saddles making all the yeah. money.
1: Yeah, it's funny with all the other, you know, the The Godfather 2s and the conversations like money-wise couldn't, you know, compete, not that it couldn't compete, but it did couldn't uh, you know, overtake the star power and the, you know, box office draw of a movie like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, but obviously totally different on a quality level. That's not necessarily what it was trying to do. Right. But
0: like, you know, is this, is this the equivalent? I mean, this is certainly a high quality film. I think for the most part, you know, action, action movies today, or, you know, movies that lack a certain sense of um, care for character at the expense of, you know, uh, that big blockbuster effects and all that, the stuff that we see today, you know, there's people that love those, but, and they, they say, you know, oh, you can, I just want to turn my brain off and I don't want to mm-hmm. think about it. I wonder, I mean, I'm sure there, there must be a level of, of criticism against this that was like, yeah, but this is the, like back then that like, I don't know that this is still lacking and, and why do I care about some of these characters and, and it yeah, Where the the people who loved it were like, well, I'm turning my brain off, but I, I don't know if this is like brainless, you know, I don't think it is like that mindless kind of thing. No,
1: I know it's better than that. Yeah. It's uh, I, I do think that they, they did make an attempt. And, and I think the actors themselves are so good. Yeah. You know, these these are great actors, some of the best of all time who are just, you know, pu- able to pull some character and emotion out of these people. Yeah. So. Um, I think that's the difference. I, th- I do think, you know, casting matters. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and we saw that, you know, this, like we mentioned, Poseidon and this really are the best of these disaster movies. You'd have so many more with, with Airport and Earthquake and The Swarm and, you know, just every kind of disaster. Cause, because these movies were hits, that was it. They were, you know, it's like, kind of like, Marvel was a hit, so DC is trying to copy everything that Marvel is doing as far as their features go. Um, You know, you had a lot of that throughout the rest of the 70s, and you had, like, four airport movies, and, you know, it was... And and it goes through, all the way through 1983. I think the last one is When Time Ran Out, which is a a volcano on an an island movie, and and actually stars Paul Newman, who you can clearly tell does not want to be in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) So maybe he took it for the check one more time. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the, uh, but yeah, this is the, this is the best of the, of that genre. And, uh, if you if anyone caught it on TV when it aired, it was they put all these deleted scenes back in and made it even longer. I can't
0: imagine. So it's that. like, oh my god.
1: Yeah, it's like three and a half hours or something. It's like it's like Titanic, but uh,
0: so it was it was an event to watch The Towering Inferno on TV. Yeah, you, you reserved the day to do that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the you know we talked about how Irwin Allen was smart enough to make two studios combine this into one movie instead of competing movies that would, you know, cancel each other out. We would see that happen in 1997 with Volcano Hmm. starring Tommy Lee Jones and Dante's Peak starring, was it Linda Hamilton and Pierce Brosnan? Oh, yes, that's correct. So both of those movies came out at at almost the exact same time. And, you know, I think both had a lot of problems, but, uh, you know, basically the same movie happening twice uh was was uh not helping
0: yeah yeah well i mean that happens a lot there's that happens a lot in hollywood where they're two competing projects that are just so similar um you know you had your you had your bug's life in your in your ants you had your um well that was just the first thing that came to my mind but like
1: um well that's a good
0: one yeah know. um what the hell was the i'm just trying to Never mind. Oh, I, I I I can only think of a single movie and then not think of its counterpart. So <laughs> Never.
1: yeah, but I mean, you see it with with action movies a lot, and yeah. you know it it, it does happen. It, but it it was it was kind of a testament to you know just such a smart move on his part sure. um, to to convince two studios to work together when that's a very difficult thing to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like oh wait, well like Tombstone and like Wyatt Earp were kind of like around the same time, right? Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. They were fairly close together. And, and um, I remember, what was you the? know, the, Tombstone's the Hollywood version, which I think people really enjoyed. So Wyatt Earp being the longer, more true to life, slower paced version, uh, did not, uh, could not keep up with it.
0: Yeah. Uh, what were the dog movies? Canine Cop? Was it, what was it called? Or...
1: Turner and Hooch and
0: Canine? And Canine. Just Canine. Yeah. Turner and Hooch and Canine. Yeah uh right so and then uh uh executive decision in air force one they were kind of near each other i think like big yeah big pretty close disaster.
1: i think within a few months deep yeah.
0: deep impact armageddon <clears throat> like you know these things yeah these things happen. Uh, that was a
1: big one that was that was yeah it does uh, you know then then they now they try to compete with each other to out, outdo it but uh I, I don't know i wonder what would have happened if they did make separate movies here yeah yeah, yeah. it would have been interesting
0: no i think both would be bad or at least not at this level (laughs) yeah probably who knows unless unless erwin allen was involved in one of them probably right right (laughs) well he would have been he would have been yeah he'd be doing
1: one of them so Uh, anyway (laughs) (laughs) um as far as putting these in uh, you know where do these rank in newman and mcqueen's careers I don't know, you know, it's, it's there, it's up there for entertainment value. Yeah. Um. If you're looking at quality characters and story and, um, you know, I don't think this is that high. There's, there's a lot, a lot of their movies ahead of this one, but um, sure, yeah. if you're just looking to, you know, not emotionally dive too deep and psychologically dive too deep and, have to you know just looking for something to enjoy sit back and kind of enjoy the almost like a little bit of a roller coaster then then this is definitely the one for you
0: yeah i mean there's plenty of projects where you could like uh you know if you were to say uh george clooney's pretty good actor right there's movies he, he actually does really well in i heard and then you know you wouldn't necessarily say like oceans 11 is the biggest stretch for him it's like oceans 11 with brad pitt you know they're just kind of having fun doing like doing a movie laughing all day (laughs) like um but both of both of those actors surely you would point to like oceans Eleven's fine but you wouldn't point to their like top in their top performances for any reason i mean
1: right but still you'd be like it's a
0: good movie or whatever if you if you like that sort of thing yeah but
1: uh and that's okay too yeah there's nothing wrong with that yeah so it's just like
0: how so how lucky are we to to get these actors who do so well, who've done great work, and then they come together to kind of do something a little different and and I, I think if, without their charm and their um, and how they compel audiences, you know this movie would be lacking. I think you, you there's really only a few people you could put uh, like you said, those casting choices right. that could have been, you probably would have still some success, but I mean, this is a great combination.
1: Yeah, I don't I think if and this is no no slight on Ernest Borgnine, but you know, if it was him and McQueen, you just you wouldn't have that box office draw that you you got with Newman and McQueen. Yeah. And it's so great. I mean, it's it's especially with the rivalry they had. It's great to like because it only happened once that these two guys did share the screen together and and uh and it worked. Hmm. So. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty uh
1: but we'll have to uh, we'll have to look at a few of these other disaster movies. We're definitely going to cover Poseidon Adventure. And yes, I think we should just right now go ahead and reserve that for the next, the 2021 Ooh, Hackathon. We have one of the entries
0: yeah. the Hackathon
1: 2.0. One of them's booked right now. <laughs> All right, cool. We're in. I think I got the other two in my head. But uh, <laughs> um, maybe we'll have to have McQueen-a-thon too at some point. Sure.
0: And I mean we got to do more Paul Newman movies.
1: Oh yeah, those will be coming. The fact yeah, that we've Those own, will be there's plenty.
0: We've only done 2 Paul Newman movies over our 2 seasons.
1: I know, crazy. Uh, he's he's probably cursing me from the grave right now, but uh Yeah, he's mad. He there's so much good stuff to to go over with him and and I will make an exception for Paul Newman that we might venture outside of our time zone a little bit and go back and look at the hustler
0: oh for sure yeah i think that that would make that's fine
1: <laughs> yeah no one would get on us for that no one's gonna yell at us for that no because yeah. d- <laughs> but yeah i'll uh, you know maybe some of these other ones uh we could have some fun with earthquake and and airport as well so yeah you know maybe we'll we'll look at that somewhere down the road yeah. for fun stay, but, um, stay tuned folks yeah, stay tuned and and uh stay tuned anyway. We've got a great lineup coming as we head towards the summer. We've got a, a fun look, you know, we've got a fun lineup scheduled. Uh I think we're going to have a good time and and our friend Brent Hutchins will be joining us uh here and there whenever his schedule allows and uh yeah, it's going to be it's going to be good.
0: Yeah, great. I'm looking forward to it. So I guess we're both saying um Well, do wait, do we put this movie on the Jack Burton scale? I mean,
1: Oh yeah, we didn't do our Jack Burtons, that's right. Yeah. Uh let's see. I out of thirteen Jack Burtons, of course that's our Kurt Russell scale of quality. Right. Uh from one, you know, zero being horrible, thirteen being as perfect as any Kurt Russell moment could be. Mm-hmm. Um let's see. I would give this ooh, I need to think about it. That's a tough one. I would probably give this a I'm gonna say a nine.
0: Nine, yeah. Okay yeah i'm going i would i probably would have put it at a eight and a half eight and a half nine well gee i don't know maybe even a nine and a half just for entertainment value for me i don't know but yeah it's it's right up there yeah, yeah for sure
1: yeah nine out of yeah so we're saying eight or nine out of 13 mm-hmm. um yeah the star the star power and just newman and mcqueen's faces just uh really uh bring it up a few notches, you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. That's
1: what they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so check it out if you haven't seen it in a while. Um, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere at the moment. You'll uh, you'll have to seek but, it out. You know,
0: if hey, listen.
1: You'll have to see a, a, yeah, a good recommendation
0: go for people. And I may have mentioned this before, but good recommendation if you're looking for things that stream, check out justwatch.com. That's JustWatch.com. Uh, they also have an app. The, it compiles all the libraries of all the streaming services, whether it's um, whether it's cable-like streaming services or your classic, you know, Netflix and all that. Anywhere you might be able to pay for for film, and it'll tell you if a film is on that and on any of those services at any point, film and TV shows. So, you know, when you listen to this show, uh, uh, maybe when we recorded it, it was on a streaming service. And then now it's not. So you can always check. So if we like, hey, it's on Netflix or whatever of any film, uh, when you ch- go to Just Watch, double check because maybe you're listening to this six months later. Because as we all know, things come and go on all the different services for different reasons. So, uh, yeah. you know, at least you'll be able to figure out your, your streaming access before you run to your local video store like a videotech uh, to pick it up.
1: Yeah, which I always recommend if if possible. Yeah, to uh, run out to your local video store, support them uh, as well. But uh, absolutely, yeah. So, but uh, don't forget, you can always go back to our library, check out some of our older episodes. www.reconsidimation.com. We've got so many great things. We're, uh, you know, David. Are it's almost our. Uh, we're about to head into year three coming up very soon. Can you believe so it? We might have to do something special for that.
0: Maybe. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not.
1: <laughs> maybe it's business as usual. I don't know.
0: But no, maybe we'll yeah. do something fun. That'd be great.
1: Yeah. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, don't forget to check us out on our social media platforms uh, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Reconcinimation Podcast. Uh, and check out some of our, you know, a quick plug for some of our other friends podcasting out there. Uh, check out EK Wimmer, who does our theme music. Uh, Check out his podcast, Laser Graves, which is super fun. Uh, And check out uh, some other friends, Saturday Night Sleepovers, who are uh, another look back at some older films. And uh, I want to say a quick thank you to Curtis Moore for the artwork and the poster, as usual. Also, if you are really into the Towering Inferno, you might want to check out a site called toweringinfernoinfo.info. And there's a lot of... uh, a lot of information in there. If you want to dive even deeper into the movie, uh, check that out.
0: Yeah, I think it's, and to clarify, thetoweringinferno.info. That, that's, yes, yeah. you're correct. That's yeah, just to clarify. But yes, uh, a lot of, lot of behind-the-scenes uh, stuff on that, a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah, a,
1: a tremendous amount of storyboards, a whole bunch of things. So uh, check that out if you love this movie, and yeah. Uh, with that, I think uh, we're going to wrap it up. We're, we're going to have to catch you guys next time for uh, the next episode of Reconcination.
0: Bye now.